What's up, my friends, and welcome back to another episode of The New Wave Entrepreneur. You know what's so interesting? We had a hundred episodes of my first podcast, which was the Daniel Piazza Show, and that was from 2017 to 2019. And we've already made 22 episodes of this new show, which is the New Wave Entrepreneur, and it's only been running for two months. That tells me, one, I'm super excited and energized, interested to do this work. I finally feel like I have something to say. And two, that means you're digging it because I wouldn't be creating these this fast if I wasn't getting the feedback. And I love the fact that everyone is completely dialed in with the things we've been talking about, whether it's new wave financial stuff from crypto, Web3 and blockchain, all the way through personal sovereignty, self-defense, martial arts, psychology and psychedelics. This podcast is a hodgepodge, a mishmash, uh, an entire cornucopia of interesting, weird, wild and wacky things. And I hope that you're enjoying this ride. And, you know, speaking on the Web3 crypto stuff, by the way, we've been talking a lot about new wave financial stuff. But guess what? All of this in our mind is underpinned by the fact that, hey, if you're listening to this, the third word in the title is entrepreneur. It's a good chance uh, that you are an entrepreneur or you're at least a professional and you're concerned uh, about creating the best financial health you can for yourself and your family. I I applaud you. I am with you. I'm on the same page. In fact, this year, one of my number one priorities was making sure that my financial habits were in tip-top shape. And so I want to make sure that you have all the training to do that. This episode today is all about money mindset upgrades. And I'm going through specific things that I have picked up through my experiences in my life, even some specific myths that I used to believe about money that I no longer do and how I've been able to upgrade my mindset. But with that in mind, Let's talk about this upcoming workshop that we have going. It's called Money Moves. So last month, you'll have seen that I did the New Wave workshop, which is all about crypto, DeFi, Web3, and all the things in between. And as some as as someone who likes to have some cohesiveness and some cohesion to my teaching, I want to make sure that we actually broaden the scope here and talk about money and finances itself, specifically for entrepreneurs and professionals. And that's why we're hosting the Money Moves Workshop here in January. It's right at the end of January, January 27th. And the cool thing about this workshop is that we're going to be able to go both both strategic and philosophical on, you know, what is money? How does it work? How should you look at it? How should you invest? And also we're going to go uh, tactical, specifically what to do and how. And so we're going to cover, for instance, how I separate my business and my personal finances without headaches, how I track my cash flow to make sure I always have enough, you know, enough on hand, enough cash on hand, all the tools I use to calculate my monthly revenue and expenses and investments with real examples. We're going to talk about how I consistently set and hit goals with my money. We're going to talk about the practical stuff. And we're also going to dig into uh, setting up a portfolio, how to balance your portfolio. We talk a lot about crypto here. And crypto is obviously the the riskiest, we'll say, or hey, if you've been listening, you'll even know I use the word volatile a lot. Certainly the most volatile of the assets. And we want to talk about how to hedge some of our bets, how to balance some of this risk, and also understanding tax strategies, guys. How do we legally save as much as we can? How do we legally avoid paying as much as we can on taxes. And so all of this combined will give us a great idea for how to manage and how to grow and develop our finances as entrepreneurs. And that's what this workshop is all about. We're going to be going over day-to-day bookkeeping, financial tracking, understanding cash flow, building your portfolio, setting up a good tax structure, understanding these new regulations around crypto taxes, all the stuff that's going to help you to become a more complete, confident uh, individual with your money, understanding exactly what to do with it and how to make it work for you. Tickets for this are already on sale if you're listening to this podcast. And here's how it works. It's $97 to buy a one-off ticket and it's a great price. We have a limited number of seats and you can go grab your ticket 
at da, 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 newwaveentrepreneur.com forward slash workshop. Now, there are two options for purchasing your ticket. If you purchase one off, God bless you. It's 97 bucks and we'll see you at the show. But if you decide to become a premium member of the New Wave Entrepreneur community, you get into these workshops, not just this one, but all the ones coming in the future for free. That's right. Uh, the New Wave Entrepreneur Premium Edition is our community where I get a chance to give you all my best stuff. I get to give you private essays and podcasts with my best research, full-length workshops on crypto, business, and life, All lots of things I have planned for this year. We have a New Wave Discord uh, server that we just activated. We have VIP tickets and discounts on new things that are coming up. We're doing uh, crypto giveaways. We're doing exclusive merch drops, more when I think of it. So this is the community you want to be in. If you join New Wave Premium, you will get all the workshops I'm doing for free this year. It's 29 bucks a month or it's uh, $1.99 for the entire year. So I would definitely save if I were you. Either way, check out Money Moves. It's our new workshop. It's coming up January 27th. Now that's just a live recording. Oh, the dogs are in the background. And if you can't make it, you'll check out the, the recording. And that's it. So you don't have to worry about missing it. Okay, that's it. Let's get to this podcast before these canines self-destruct. On to the show. All right, let's get into the show for today. So let's talk about this. I, you know, I wrote out this post a while ago and I was thinking about the best way to translate this information. Since we know that the Money Moves Workshop is coming up within the next few weeks here, it's coming up January 27th. I was thinking about how do I start this conversation with you? How do I start this conversation with an audience? And there are a couple of things I assume. One, I assume if you're listening to this, you are an entrepreneur or you are an entrepreneur adjacent, meaning you're a, a solopreneur, someone who's doing the work uh, for themselves and getting paid for the work that you're doing rather than working for a company. Or I assume that you are a professional, so someone who does work for a larger organization, but who has uh, bigger aspirations for your life and for your career. And potentially, maybe you're even an, an, uh, an intrapreneur where you're working inside of a company, but you're working almost from an entrepreneurial perspective to create change within that company. And the reason why I think these are important distinctions is because in order for you to have success as an entrepreneur, you really have to upgrade your money mindset. You know, in order for you to have success as a professional to keep growing, you need to upgrade your money mindset. And I thought about all the things that for me, were impediments to my growth through the years and understanding, becoming comfortable with, and mastering money. And I just want to say here, I have not mastered money by any stretch of the imagination, but I am learning and I am growing and every year I get better. And of course, I look at the things I've learned along the way. I improve my habits and I, you know, and, and I take note of it. So what I'm going to do for you now is lay out these 10 myths that I discovered about myself or 10 myths that I discovered from my from my journey throughout life and how I changed those myths in my mind to become mindset upgrades around money. So without further ado, here we go. Let me look. What do I have here? Aha. My first myth I have on here is that money is hard to make and difficult to manage. Now, if you have read my book, uh, Rich 20-something, which was my first book back in 2017, uh, you'll know that one of my, I don't know, I would guess the tent pole phrases, or I don't know what you call it, pillar phrases is, you know, 
Money is easy. And you know what? I like to say something. I think that money is easy depending on your, not just your, uh, your luck, because I think many people feel that money is easy for lucky people, but I feel that money is easy depending on your resourcefulness. And I always had the idea that money was uh, challenging when I was a kid. I always had the idea that making it was hard and holding on to it was harder. And I think that's just because of the way that I grew up. I mean, you know, I grew up in a single parent home for the most of my life, even though I was really my mother and my grandmother raising me. Both of them had the same blueprint on money, which was basically nada. My, my grandfather taught my mom. You got, you got to understand my, my, Grandfather, my grandmother taught my mom. So my grandmother had my mom when she was 19. My mom had me when she was 17. So those are two teen mothers in a row. Now, my great grandfather, who was my grandmother's father, because my grandmother was so young when I was born, she was 38 when I was born. My grandfather was, well, he would have had to have been in his 60s when I was born. My great grandfather. Uh, when I, whenever I say my grandfather on the show, I mean my great-grandfather. Now, I, I mention him because these are the people that uh, created the money awareness in the family. My great-grandfather was a uh, World War II veteran, so he's part of that great generation. And the great generation had a completely different framework around money. They didn't talk about it. They didn't really see it as anything more than the way that we were taught about it in history books. You know, you work in school, you try to accumulate as much as possible, and then you hold it and you save on to it for as long as possible. And when my great-grandfather was becoming a, a an adult, a man, after World War II, after he, after he was uh, back from the war, he immediately enlisted in law school. And of course, as you know, in the late 40s, early 50s, there was a huge boom in the American economy, and he was able to take advantage of that. He was able to really ride that wave. That was not the the new wave, but the old wave. Back then, it was the old. It's the it's the old new wave. <laughs> he was able to ride that wave pretty pretty well. And he had a family of six kids. One of those being my grandmother, um, who I just who I just mentioned. And so, him having taught her about money in that old way, and then her being a teenager when she had my mom, and Still not really having real information about making and preserving wealth meant that I didn't get a lot passed down from my grandmother to my mom to me. The, I would say the knowledge about money pretty much stayed stagnant from 19, in the 1950s when my grandmother was a, a small child until the 1980s or 90s when I was a small child. I would say that the the money knowledge pretty much stayed the same, which was to say almost nothing. My great-grandfather, who was a professional when he got out of law school, made a lot of money at that time. I'm sure he was making, you know, fifty dollars to $100,000 easily, which when he just got out of law school in the 50s was a lot of money. You know, he was, that's a six-figure salary, essentially. And uh, and at that time, you know, you had to look at the at the, the charts, but just think about it. You know, our inflation is at 7% right now. Um, we have our, our consumer price index has increased seven to 10 times 
since 1971, which is when we left the gold standard. So we're talking 20 years before we even left the gold standard. And 1950 to 1970 was the golden age of American currency as the uh, as the global exchange currency because we were st- the whole world was still reeling and repairing from World War II, and we were yet almost completely unaffected by it. So we had 20 years to really build up that monetary uh, dominion. So it was good enough at that time to make a lot of money at a good job, which is what my grandfather did, and save as much as he, you know, you can. And my great grandfather, who just died last year in April at 99, God damn it, he missed 100. And my great grandmother, who's still alive at 97, I would say for the most part, got to live out that framework of money. They are now, well, my great-grandmother who's still alive is living with uh, one of my uncles. But, and so so they they were almost able to make it their entire adult lives, which is now into their hundreds, late 90s, on just the money that they had saved up and, you know, had over the years. But now they're obviously needing help. I don't think anybody expected to live this long at that time. And what we're really seeing too is that the value of the dollar is drastically decreasing, which I've been talking about on my show a lot. So I I mention all this with a purpose to say that at that time, getting a great job and stashing away as much money as possible was a pretty viable retirement strategy. Yes, they still had uh, different retirement vehicles. And I'd have to look into the stats specifically, but I don't think it was till the 1970s that we had things like 401ks or IRAs. I have to look. Let me see. What year? What year did they come up with IRAs? IRAs were created in 1974. And what years were 401ks created? You can hear my, I have a new puppy and she is, uh, she sounds a bit like a, she sounds a bit like a small bird when she's whining. 401ks were created. So I believe that's 1978. So we're looking at, you know, things that were created in the mid to late seventies. And so this is, you know, the, the, the American dollar at this time was better than gold because, well, although it was pegged to gold, it was pegged to something solid. There was so much of it around and it was so easy to move and so many people wanted it that it was essentially better than gold. And, you know, it's a shame. But either way, those money, finish the it's a shame that it's no longer better than gold, but all things move on. Uh, if you want to hear more about this, listen to my review of Dalio, which I believe was episode 17 on the podcast. Uh, Dalio's new book, How to Deal with Changing uh, Economic Order or Changing World Powers, Changing World Order. Okay, so all that to say that my the myth one that I that I had written down was money is hard to make and difficult to manage. You know, at that, I had always thought that money was going to be hard to make and I thought it was going to be harder to grow it and deal with it and mess with it. And I didn't get much positive reinforcement uh, about making money or managing money as a kid. What I learned and how I upgraded that mindset was that I realized that my ability to make money and my ability to manage money are solely solely dependent on my habits, on my ability to constantly, one, create value because money is made through value creation. Now, value is an intrinsic, or I'm sorry, value is a, is a, um, it's a very subtle and invisible good you're providing when you're providing value. No one can actually tell you what value is, but they know when they have received it. Value is anything you'll exchange for money or for resources 
or for currency. And value can go up and down depending on the conditions. But value is something that basically requires you to think, what do other people need and how can I provide that? And that's not something that's based on the luck of the draw. I mean, obviously, I'm speaking from a privileged position in America with lots of things going my way. And I would say that in most economies, even non-American economies, even non-Western economies, value comes down to providing something for someone that is worth more, than, that has a perceived worth that's more than X amount that they have in currency or in dollars, right? And so you want to give something to someone that they couldn't get for themselves, that they can get faster by working with you, that they can do better by working with you, a product that they can't make in their in their house, something that they couldn't have even thought of, but they know that they need. These are all types of value you can provide. And that's why people give you money. So it's hard to make if you can't provide a lot of value. And it doesn't, by the way, let's also talk about economic value and economic output here. I'm not talking about value as a person, value as a human being. I'm talking about economic value. So if you're providing a service for someone, you want that service to either make something faster that would have been slow, that saves time and time is money. You want to, you know, if you're just talking about services, provide a service or a software or something that will make things more organized or simpler or more profitable. Again, that's a service, but see how that's value, okay? It doesn't mean that you're not a good person or that you uh, don't have, also intelligence, intelligence and value are not the same thing. So you can be intelligent and still not be able to provide value. So there are all these different, you know, I think misconceptions about what value is. We're talking purely economic value. How can you make my life better and make it easier for me to live at a price that I think is worth less than what you're charging, right? Um, or I should say, how can you how can you give me what I need at a price that's worth more than what you're charging, right? So I want to be I want you to over deliver that value to people. That's how you're going to find ways to make money. It's not hard to make if you do, can deliver value. And as far as managing it, that comes down to daily hygiene, man. One of the things I'll say, and I think that I don't know, it's just a mental block for me, but I didn't like to look at my bank accounts a lot. I think just because I didn't want to see what was going on in there or even if I knew I had money, like I just didn't want to deal with it. It's like, you know, it's just like it's not a fun area of life for a lot of people. And I like making it, but I don't always like looking at it and fucking with it. And I think one of the things is you have to have a certain amount of uh, of financial hygiene. You know, when you are dealing with your money, there's a certain amount where you can just be like, all right, well, you know, I'll just... I'll let it happen. Whatever happens, I, I will, you know, I'll make my purchases. I'll organize it later. But the more daily you are with your financial hygiene, the better you're going to see where you're, you know, maybe being a little bit too loose. It's similar to a diet, you know. You can eat by feel, meaning that, all right, I pretty much know the types of foods that I need to eat and I pretty much know the timing and I pretty much know what what feels good for me. So I'm not going to track anything. And a lot of people do that. And you can have a good amount of success like that, especially if you're already in a fairly healthy place. But if you are working on developing your financial health and getting way better and way stronger, you can't just kind of like half halfway check. You have to really track this stuff. Just like if you were, you know, changing your nutrition or tracking your nutrition. So I would say one thing that really was a mindset shift for me and an upgrade was that you can create a habit to look in at all your accounts every day. So I will look in at my all my bank accounts, my crypto accounts, my investment accounts, uh, anything that is 
revolves around me and my money. I'll look at it on a daily basis or at least every few days. And I have some certain spreadsheets and tracking and ways that I create financial hygiene, uh, which I will be sharing, by the way, at the Money Moves Workshop, which is January 27th. And you can go to newwaveentrepreneur.com forward slash workshop to check out details for that. But, you know, this is how I create financial hygiene. So that's how I destroy that myth. So money is not hard and it's not difficult to make and manage as long as you understand that you can develop better habits around it and become smarter, stronger and faster and sharper. Okay, let's keep it going. Another myth that I learned as a young kid that no longer sits well in this world and I've discovered an upgrade for is the myth that bills can be paid late. So for instance, uh, most, let's say, let's say rent or mortgage or um, lots of bills have a sort of like a grace period. And, you know, I would see my mom and I'm realizing a little bit more of what this is now. I'd see my mom would often pay bills late or she would stretch the money just until the grace period and then pay. Even I think if sometimes she had the money, she would wait until the grace period and finally pay. And I've done that before in my life too. Uh, I think part of it is because I would like to see the money in my account for a few days longer. And then I would feel like, oh, well, you know, I would feel a little bit richer than I was because I hadn't paid my actual bills yet. And then sometimes what I would do is I would fuck it up and I would actually pay late by accident because I was holding on to the money too long, hoarding it for no reason. Or I was holding on to the money and then something else came through that I wasn't expecting. And it actually made me not have enough money to pay for the thing I was hoarding the money over, which I had to pay that anyway. So this happened to me a bunch of times in my life. And it just, it's not a very good habit. It doesn't really work well for me. I don't do it anymore. I haven't done it in years, uh, but it doesn't work well for me. And I learned that it's better to pay bills early. You know, as, as silly as it sounds, it's it's similar to showing up at a, you know, it's similar to showing up at an appointment early, a doctor's appointment early. You can always show up on time. And even if you show up late, most of the time, things will usually work out if you're not too late, but it's better to show up early. In fact, I'd rather show up early somewhere and wait in the parking lot for 15 minutes because it allows you to walk in very well composed. Then you're, you know, you're speeding into the, the parking spot. You're flustered. You're red and pasty. You know, it's just not a good look. So I would highly encourage you to pay things early that, or, you know, or exactly on time. But the best thing you can do is not have the, the dread of a bill hanging over you. Or fuck it up by not paying it and then not having enough money to pay something and having to go back. It's just, it's a whole, it's a whole hassle. Cause sometimes what will happen is I'll have the money to pay something. I'll forget to pay it or I won't pay it for whatever reason. And then I'll get hit with a late fee. And I'll, so I'll be paying a late fee when I had the money the whole time. It's just throwing money away. It's useless, you know, pointless. So, and also it's not good for you to be late. They'll, they'll take note of that, especially if you're talking about like a credit card, especially with credit cards. Uh, I don't know if I have any myths on here about credit cards. I should add something. Okay, so that's it. So that's number three. Bills can be paid late. That was a myth. I turned that into a mindset upgrade. Be on time or early. Okay, number three. If you have the credit, spend it. Um, Okay, I didn't see my mom or really anybody around me spend too deep on credit when I was a kid. I saw a little bit of it. Um, I saw a little bit of it as an, as an adult too. I think people are just, you know... Credit is so easily available these days, and it I think it's going to become harder to get over the coming months and years because of all the financial changes that are happening, and I'm not sure if the banks can really uh, depend on people to pay back some of these these uh, loans are given out and some of this money that they're given out. 
you know, credit in particular, credit cards like consumer debt, um, what they call it, uh, circulating consumer debt is pretty expensive. It's usually like a 25% interest, which is really, really bad. And so it's just, if you have the credit, try not to spend it would be my thing. Like I'll even say I have not even that much actual credit. For my personal credit, I have $10,000 total of credit. And I've actually stopped myself from getting more because it's almost like a, it's almost like a defense or a protectionism, protection mechanism. If I only have $10,000 of credit, the worst I can go in debt is $10,000. And it also keeps my overall debt ratio low because I want to keep my debt as low as possible. I'll keep my debt, you know, zero to 5%, you know, and that keeps my, my credit score as high as possible. And if I have a $10,000, I think my limit is actually $11,000. If I have an $11,000 limit, then I can only spend like $1,000 before I'm right over my, right over my, my limit before it affects my credit. And so it keeps me paying things off aggressively. And I've made this mistake in the past where I've had too much credit and I have spent too much of it and I had to pay it back and I had all this interest and, you know, it's just not really a great look. And I don't really need the credit. Like I have never, there are times when you can use other people's credit to your advantage. I'm talking mostly here about credit cards. So there are loans you can use that have great interest rates. There are things you can do in real estate. There are things you can do in crypto. There are different types of loans you can get. I'm not really talking about that. I'm mostly talking consumer credit cards. With your consumer credit, just try not to spend it. Just don't spend it, period. I think that's a good rule. And if you do spend it, pay it back immediately. Don't let it ride with the balance. Don't even consider it money that you have. You don't have that money. It's not yours. You don't have it, okay? If you spend on that card without a way of paying that back, you know, or idea of how you're going to do that in the near future, it's bad because then it sits on there And when you pay minimum payments, it'll never go down. I don't know what the math is on this, but just paying minimum payments on something will ensure that it will always go up and never go down uh, because the, the interest does not, does not eat into the principal. So I've, yeah, I've been by this a few times. It sucks. Just avoid it if you can. If you have credit, great. Don't spend it and save it for a super, super, super emergency. Like if you really, really need the credit, you know, Save for for a super emergency. For my personal life, you know, this, you know, for my personal life, I would rather, I would rather use cash if I have an emergency or I'll use, if I have, if I need a $10,000, if I have a $10,000 problem, I'll solve it. You know, if I have it and I have no cash, but I'd rather not. So anyway, that's my thought. And that's what I've learned. Mindset upgrade. If you don't have the credit, if you, even if you have the credit, don't spend it. That's the upgrade. Okay. My next mindset money upgrade. This is based off another myth that I saw in my life, in my childhood. It was that saving money is done infrequently. So what I saw as a kid was that whenever one of my parents or my grandparents or someone would get a windfall of cash, windfall of cash they would save some. Um, and I think, let's be clear here. I think that a lot of this is just because, well, okay, let's say two things. One, saving is a habit. So saving itself is a habit. Saving and investing are both habits. And you have to condition the habit for it. So even when you're not making that much money, you should be figuring out how to save some, which sounds very tone deaf sometimes because sometimes you just don't have anything at the end of the day. So I'm really laying out general principles. I'm not speaking to your individual situation, but I will just say this. We have to learn how to save a little bit because if you just look at the way that the system is set up, no one else is saving anything for us. Everyone is eating everything off the plate every single day. And there's more money being created every day. 
So if you can save a little bit here and a little bit there, you'll be able to stack some up. And I would also encourage you to invest that money if you can, because simply saving it in a savings account really doesn't do anything for you. You're actually losing money by saving in a savings account. But just developing the habit of saving is certainly better than saying, well, the economy is going to shit. I shouldn't bother saving at all because the money is just going to be worth less. At least you'll have some in there, though. Sure, if you save $100 today, in a year, it'll only be worth $93 because there's a 7% inflation rate. So that's true. But at least you'll have $93, which is 93 more than you'd have if you'd say, I'm not going to save any because inflation is too bad. Now, what I would recommend is that you don't wait until you get a big influx of cash to save. Just save a little bit with every week, with every paycheck, with every month. Set some regular recurring savings. Um, Just create a habit out of it where you don't have to think about it. And that will allow you to look back into your um, your savings, you know, in months or years and be like, damn, there's a lot of money in here. You can even download apps. Uh, there's an app called, oh, let's see. There's a couple different investing apps. I have to look through my phone. Uh, but these apps will just save for you automatically. You know, there's one called Acorns, which is basically a, an automatic saving and investing app where you can just plug in your bank account and it will save some money for you. There's another one called Digit, which is an automatic savings account, which will save money for you. And you can hook up your phone right to that and it will just save a small amount of money every day. But let me tell you, you look in there in a couple months, you're like, damn, there's 700 bucks in here. You know, that's a lot of money and it's come from you know nowhere. Acorns even does this roundup feature where if you spend, if you spend like, you know, um, $22.50 at the store, it'll round up to the dollar, make it $23 and then take that 50 cents and it will save it into one of your investment accounts. So it rounds up every single purchase that you make. And usually it will wait like a week. Then it will take all the purchases that you made, round them up, and then throw it into your investment account. And that's amazing, man. Like, it's just simple, automated ways to do it. Don't wait until you get a windfall. You may, you may, you may never get a windfall. And saving, saving and investing. Saving is the first key to being able to invest. You can't invest unless you can save. Because invested money is saved money, you know? So that's the mindset upgrade. Don't wait until you have a windfall of cash. Save frequently. Okay, mindset upgrade number five comes closely on the heels of the, well, the myth that I had to encounter. And it was that investing is too complicated to even attempt. Now, I, again, come from a family with most of their wealth knowledge passed down from someone who was doing uh, work after World War II when the dollar was great. And there wasn't as much information publicly available available about investing. And I, man, I think now the generations that have gone past, I think what if my grandfather would have invested in some of the the amazing innovations that were happening in the, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, you know, these new companies that are being built. What if my grandmother or even my mother, but especially my grandmother would have invested in these innovative internet companies of the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. And I don't know, part of it, I get a little bit mad. I get I get angry, you know, sometimes because I felt like I wasn't given the best leg up. I mean, listen, I was given a fantastic leg up in terms of love, which is the most important thing because I have self-confidence and I have I'm whole, I'm healthy, I'm happy. So that's number 1. You know, I also have a I had like a like a like a safe place to grow up. So all that stuff is is covered. But I think that we were stuck in a very much of a solid middle-class mindset and even looking at our real standing. Like if I had to actually look at how much money we had when I was growing up, I would say that we were closer to lower middle class. Um, My grandmother was an attorney. So like my great grandfather, my grandmother was an attorney. And 
when she was 38, I was being born. And at that, she didn't really get her, she got her, her law degree in 88, but then she didn't really start practicing, you know, consistently and, 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 you know, getting well, doing numbers until like maybe the early nineties. And she really only had a few years of productive career as a, as an attorney. She probably practiced consistently and made some really good money from, I'd say 92 to 92 to 98, 92 to 99, something like that. Wasn't even a full decade, a decade if we're being generous. And as we moved to Florida and there's family stuff going on and she was hit with some autoimmune diseases and all these different changes that were going on. And through that process, I think that she didn't, she kind of like fell off the, she fell off the career ladder. She didn't really get a chance to get settled back and get into her career. And, and because of all that stuff, I think that we had several generations of our family who just didn't really get to dig into the money thing. And the investments were completely left off the table. I mean, I don't think anybody besides whatever a company might have given them or maybe some small independent stuff has really sunk a good amount of money into the stock market. Now, I have a few uncles uh, who might have some money in there and they're older now and dear God, I hope they do. But for the most part, we are not an investing family. Well, you know what? Let me let me use the right terminology here to create what I want. I would say the family that I grew up in was not one that was well-educated in investment and the family I've created now is. But we didn't talk about it. I didn't even know what it was. I had no context for what investing was. I had to learn all this stuff by myself. Uh, and now I, I know that I am the only one with this information, at least that I, in my immediate family, because when I talk to my mom about this stuff, she doesn't know what I'm talking about. I have to teach her. And so I, yeah, I was a little bit resentful of it. Um, and I think that also there has to be a, you know, a note, a notification here that um, investing has gotten a lot easier, especially for the millennial generation over the last decade. I mean, if you just look at, for instance, Robin Hood, who we don't necessarily like on this podcast, but is an example of a millennial app that's made investing super easy. And many of these firms are not catching up with making it easy to just input your bank information, buy a stock and step away. The internet really made most of this easy is what is what really happened is the internet became available. And once the internet came around, it was easier to invest. I think when my grandmother and my grandfather were coming up, it was mostly just like going to a stockbroker and they would have to do it for you. And it was more complicated. And if you weren't brought up in that world, hey, you know, but it still means that I didn't get the information until I got older. And I probably didn't even really start to understand the info until I was in my mid-20s. And now I'm in my early 30s. So it's taken me a bit of time. And I, whereas on the other hand, I have friends who have uh, parents in they're either wealthy or they're just educated and well-to-do if they're not super wealthy, still educated and, you know, and still participants in the market. And they've been investing, you know, they're in their 30s now. They've been investing since they were in their teens. And I just didn't have that runway. So I thought that it was complicated. I thought that it was hard. Now what I realize is it's just a certain set of knowledge. It's just like anything else. You know, you go to jujitsu and it is hard. That, that There's nothing, there's no argument there. It's hard. It's fucking hard. And it gets easier as you do it more. Same thing with cooking. If I asked you to cook, you know, a, a recipe without a cookbook uh, and gave you the raw ingredients, you wouldn't be able to do it. It'd be hard. You know, all these new things that we come up on life that are hard, uh, there are a lot of times skill sets that we have yet to acquire. And so, you know, investing is a skill set, uh, you know, and by the way, you don't even need to be right all the time to do well investing. And you can do some pretty basic things with investing and make a good amount of money. You know, even my my main thing with investing is I just love uh, keeping it simple. 
You know, you can invest in ex- exchange traded funds, ETFs like Vanguard, which is uh, the ticker symbol would be like VOO or the Vanguard Growth Fund, which is VOOG. And you buy a share of this stuff and you can go on Vanguard.com and buy this stuff. And basically, it's just a basket of stocks that either track the top stocks in the United States or the top tech stocks or the top whatever whatever sector you're interested in. And so you might buy a share, I think, let me look here, VOO. VOOG. Let's see. Let's look at let's look at VOO first. So Vanguard. This is the Vanguard S and P 500 ETF. So what that means is this fund tracks the uh, top 500 companies in the U.S. public market, and it basically puts them all in a basket and tracks them. And basically, you're hoping that the overall stock market is going to return a positive. ROI. And what do we know? Well, we know that the stock market over time returns 5-10% year over year, even with all the bad years factored in. And that probably has, you know, there, there's probably uh, some years where it's really high, some years where it's really low, but it averages 5 to 7. And I think even, or 5 to 10, I think it's even closer to 7 to 8. And if you, if you look at just the amount of time it takes to double something, I believe it takes, I'm not have to think about the math, but I believe it takes at an average interest rate of 7%, which is like the middle, the middle average interest rate from the stock market. At 7% interest year over year, it takes you seven years to double your money. I have to look at the math on that. This is just something that I memorized, but it takes you seven years to double your money at 7%, which honestly, is pretty fucking good. It's like, it all compounds too. It's not just the, it's not just the, um, the value of the stock itself. It's the fact that you're putting, well, that's if you don't leave, that's if you put nothing in there. But hopefully you're actually, you're adding more money to your portfolio, you know, on a regular basis. But even just, uh, even just over seven years, it'll double. And if you look at certain stocks, you know, well, we could talk about this. I talked about this a bit in one of my most recent articles. The top five defense companies like Boeing, uh, Raytheon, uh, I'm sure a couple other ones, they are up a thousand percent in 10 years. So that's pretty savage. I mean, if you think about it, like, yeah, that's opportunistic investing right there. And I just certainly don't want to invest in directly in these 500 companies or in these top five defense companies, but I'm pretty sure they're in the top 500. And that's what the Vanguard S&P tracks. So the Vanguard's a very well-known um, fund. They're usually dead on with their, with their performance. Let's look at their performance. So last year, their fund performed. So in 2020, the Vanguard, uh, the Vanguard VOO fund the ETF uh, performed at 18.3%. The year before that, in 2019, they performed at 31.4%. And the year before that, they performed, in 2018, they lost money. They lost its negative 4%. But then before that, 2017, 21%. 2016, 11%. 2015, 1%. You know, 2014, 13. You know, 2013, 32%. So these are actually very, very high returns. I'm looking at the average. The Let's see. So the five, the 10 year average on the Vanguard fund VOO is 14.8. That's pretty good. Now, if we look at that just from the perspective of the, the little math I just shared, which I'm pretty sure is accurate. I double checked it recently. That would mean that at 14 point, let's call it 15%. It should take three to five years to double your money, which is about right. That seems about right. You know, if you're, if you're adding, you know, 15%, 
for five years, you know, it's about right. So yeah, I mean, pretty awesome. Pretty awesome. And let's look at VOOG as well. That's one of my favorites. Now the Vanguard VOO ETF is 430 bucks right now. And I don't know about from other, um, from other brokers, but you can't buy partial shares of that. You can buy partial shares of it on Robinhood, but I don't use Robinhood because of their whole debacle scandal thing. Okay, so uh, the Vanguard Growth Index, which is VOOG. So let's actually go back and let's look at VOO. So VOO, you can go to literally vanguard.com and you can open up a brokerage account. You don't even, I think you need a minimum of 500 bucks. So it's very, very low. Now, if we look at VOO, let's look at their top holdings. Let's look at their top holdings real fast. Can anyone guess what the top 20 holdings are of Vanguard uh, S&P 500, which is um, just the top countries in the U.S.? Let's see. Okay, holdings. Sorry, top companies, not countries. Okay, so 24% of their holdings are in technology. And the next biggest hold is commercial, or I'm sorry, consumer cyclical, which is 12. Oh, and then financial services, which is 14 so let's look at their top 10 holdings. So top 10 holdings in, now this is so interesting and that makes sense. Top 10 holdings in VOO are Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook, multiple classes of Google shares, Berkshire Hathaway, Tesla, nice, Nvidia and JP Morgan Chase. So those are the top holdings of VOO. Now let's look at VOOG. I mean, it's very similar. You know, VOOG is most, it's all tech. So now if we look at the performance of VOOG, which is about $290 right now, it's trading at $291, they are averaging, yeah, slightly higher on the 10-year average at 17%, which is very, very nice. Their five-year is 21%, and their one-year growth is uh, coming up on 40%. But I will look here, and it does look like they have, well, well, it's only, it's fucking January, duh. What did they do last year? Let's see. What was 2021? 2021 was, let me see. They're still logging it. It's only January 5th. You know, they're still logging it. But yeah, these are extremely well put together funds through Vanguard. So I highly recommend it. Top, by the way, their top holdings, which should almost be the same as VOO. Top holdings for VOOG, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook, Google, Tesla, and video. The only different, different ones because it's a tech fund. PayPal is in the top 10 and Adobe is in the top 10. But these are, I highly recommend these. There are other things as well. You can also buy individual stocks, but keep it simple. Buy these things, hold them, they return. If you're losing 7% in your bank account every year because inflation is 7% or higher, then you have to have something like a stock to offset that because that's the only thing that's going to grow. Well, not the only thing. There's also real estate and crypto and other things, but an asset is the only thing that's going to grow your money as inflation takes your money down, okay? So all that to say that investing is not too complicated to even attempt. That was a myth in my mindset upgrade is that there are simple, effective, easy ways to do it and I'm all about them. So let's go to the next one. Okay, this is a myth that I learned and I don't think anyone ever told me this. This isn't something that someone taught me. It's just something that I picked up and it's a bad habit, but I won't be able to tell you about it. Until after the break.
I hope you're so, so, so enjoying this episode of The New Wave Entrepreneur. I am enjoying doing this. I love being here. I love having these conversations with you. And if you want to keep having this conversation on Money Moves, I highly recommend you come to this new workshop, the Money Moves Workshop. This is January 27th. We're going to record it live, but you'll also be able to get it streaming on demand as well uh, at your leisure. This is the workshop where we're going to be going over cash flow, investment, tax strategies, and more for entrepreneurs and professionals. Understand how to manage your money. Understand how to grow your money. Understand how to save and hold on to as much of your money as you can. I'm going to be bringing in featured guests. We're going to be doing some crypto giveaways on the workshop and a whole bunch of other cool stuff. This is limited seating event. And guess what? There are two ways to get it. First, go to newwaveentrepreneur.com forward slash workshop. And you can either buy it one off, which is a one person ticket to this event. It's 97 bucks, super simple. Or you can sign up for the new wave premium. It's 29 bucks a month for new wave premium. But every workshop that we do this year, you get in for free. That's right. 0.00 dollars. No Bitcoin, no Ethereum for free. Okay. So you're definitely gonna want to check that out. Uh, newwaveentrepreneur.com forward slash workshop to get all that information, get your ticket today. It doesn't matter if you can come live, we'll have the recording for you and all the other assets that go with that workshop. So that's the last for this mid-roll. Now on to the rest of the show. Okay, now I'm bringing back to basically myth number six, and it's that there's no need to study money or personal finance. I can't believe that at one point I thought this, and no one taught me this, so I can't blame my mom. But I, I, I really, I think it goes back to similar to what I was saying in the, the very first myth. You know, learning about money is a personal choice and a discipline. So there is a need to study it because. Just because we understand math doesn't mean we understand money. And I think that is something that is overlooked in school. They will teach us how to, in theory, add numbers and understand numbers, but they don't teach us how to understand money. And there's a big, big difference there. And so there is a need to study that and to bring additional light to that, just like, you know, with martial arts. You can't just study martial arts by watching movies or videos. You got to do it. You got to get in there. So... That's a myth. I upgraded that mindset with the idea that studying money is fun, important, and uh, highly lucrative. It pays off. Okay, myth number seven, which I turned into a money mindset upgrade, is that, well, taking on debt is to be expected. Now, again, when we talk about debt, I think there are good debts and bad debts. I think that you can leverage yourself in smart ways, although sometimes you can over-leverage yourself. But In the American system, we often think that having debt is inevitable because everything is financed through debt. What I would encourage you to think is, uh, how can I do this without owing any money? That's the mindset upgrade I had to have. Now, there are still times where I've taken out debt. For instance, I took out a car note uh, recently, and I hadn't had a car in about two years. I took out a car note because I thought, all right, well, one, I just got to Beaverton. I need to get a car here. I can't just walk around. It's not Venice. And two, I would rather pay on the car note than pay the cash out front because even though there is interest in that car note and I think the interest is about 5.6% so I am paying how much is it I'm paying uh, all right so I'm paying a good amount uh, uh, let's see I'm paying all right so I'm paying you know 5000 plus 
for the for the total lifetime of the of the car. And I'm painting it over over months, over time. And so yeah, it does add up. But for me to outlay that cash in one shot, it would not be as financially prudent for me because I can do other things with that money where during that time it can be making me more money than I am spending, right? On the car. If I were to pay for the car in cash. So for instance, if you get a car in cash that costs thirty thousand dollars and you pay for it in payments, and the payments are, I don't know, 250 bucks a month with a decent interest rate of three to five percent, maybe higher. I don't know. I'm not a car uh, finance expert, but you get a decent finance package and you're paying, let's say, two or 300 bucks a month. It sucks to have that monthly bill, but if you were to pay that 30 grand up front, rather than take that 30 grand and give it to a car, if you sat that down, in let's just talk about one of my favorites, Solana. Okay. And now we're talking about crypto here. But if we talk about putting this down, even just in a, in a, in, you know, let's talk about what we just talked about, which was the Vanguard VOOG fund. So last year, last year, VOOG returned, let's see, performance. So last year, well, let's say in 2020, because I'm, you know, they don't have total returns for, well, let's look at their 10-year average. 10-year average of VOOG is 17%. So let's say you have something that returns at 17% and you take that same $30,000, right? And you put it at 0.17%. So you're going to have made $5,100 on that, on that part or on that money. Now that money is also going to continue to compound over the years that you have. If you think about it too, over the years that you have uh, for the car loan. So if it's a three to five year loan, that money is going to continue to compound every single year. And uh, you could potentially, if it's a stock, get paid dividends from it. Uh, if it's a crypto, you, the value of the crypto is going to continue to go up. So there are all these different uh, appreciating factors of depositing that larger chunk of cash into an asset. And if you pay for the car in payments, you'll have a large amount of cash to do that up front and you'll make more off the interest. If you do the math, you'll make more off the interest than you will off of the, um, then, then you're losing by taking on the financing fee from the car. So just something to think about. If you can do it with no debt, absolutely. That's often a pretty good, pretty good deal to do something with no debt. But sometimes you need, the, you need the debt to make better decisions. Same thing with the house. It's like, yeah, if you can pay, you know, I mean, houses in LA are a minimum 1.5 million now. Now, if you can pay 1.5 million in cash and it won't touch you, more power to you. But you might need to finance that thing if you're going to buy a house and use that cash for other purposes. So anyway, on to the next one. Number eight, this myth that I heard was, I think, mostly because of my World War II grandfather, and that was that talking about money is rude. I think many of us come from a a background in our household where talking about money is just seen as taboo because people are embarrassed to, one, talk about how much they have or don't have, or two, afraid to express their ignorance on a subject. And I don't say ignorance in a derogatory way. I literally just mean not knowing. I would say that I can remember the feeling of being ignorant in elementary school because when I was still learning to read, I didn't know what a paragraph was. I mean, I knew what a paragraph was, but I didn't know what the word paragraph meant. And so I remember one time my teacher asked me, Daniel, read the next paragraph. And I was paralyzed and I I, I just froze. I couldn't say anything. I said nothing. 
because I didn't know what she meant when she said paragraph. And I was looking all around and hoping that they knew what I was supposed to do. And I looked down and read something that wasn't what she wanted me to read. I read something else. And I think people feel like that when you mention money, they get crazy, they get weird, they think about all their money stories, they think about how much they don't know, they're worried that you're going to ask them something they can't answer, or they're worried that they're going to say something that's wrong, or they're, they also are, uh, not trusting of others, you know, or they have had bad experiences in the past. People try to take advantage of them. These are all reasons why we would not want to talk about money or we would think it's potentially rude. And listen, I'm obviously biased. I'm doing a whole podcast on money. So you can't say for me that I think talking about money is rude. I've clearly beaten this, uh, this roadblock mentally, but I understand why this was initially installed in my head. And you might be dealing with this too. Listen, money is just a tool. It's a skill you can learn to use. It's a skill. You know, dealing with money is a skill. It's a tool. It's a concept. But it's not something that you should feel embarrassed about. So don't. That is my mindset upgrade. Money is a tool to be used, not something to be embarrassed about. And you shouldn't feel rude for talking about it. Obviously, you don't want to put people down or make them feel bad. But let's be honest. Like, we, you know, money is a part of our lives. It's okay to talk about it. Okay, myth number nine is that you should definitely buy a house. I mean, the upgrade here is just that my, my life has not, has not shown that that's a fact yet. Now, here's what I will say. I think it's a great strategy to, what is it called? Um, buy, rent where you, rent where you live and buy where you rent. I haven't done this yet, but I'm going to. In fact, real estate is my next, uh, foray to tackle. I have some knowledge in crypto. I have some knowledge in the, you know, in traditional equities like stocks. And now I want to move to real estate, understand this market and get some property. But I'm not necessarily antsy to buy the house I'm in right now. I'm renting a house in Oregon right now and I love this house, but I don't think I would buy it. And I mean, my my opinion could change, but I think that at this point, I don't really see the value of buying it. Yes, I would buy equity in it, but really I I'm thinking of houses from a cash flow perspective. So it doesn't really matter to me if I were to have this house in my name because you you then still have all the property taxes. You're you're tethered down to the property itself. You don't want to move it. Uh, You know, everything is your responsibility because you own the house. I mean, it's pretty sweet to have this house here, but then we have this homeowners association or this, uh, this management company that does all the repairs for us. It comes by and fixes things and does stuff. You know, when you own the house, all that stuff is on you. And, I think that buying a house is great to use as a vehicle to to create cash, but I think that I might almost feel trapped if I were to buy a house and had to live in it, which is so ironic because it's such a new way of our generation looking at things. You know, generations before us, they would have loved to have um, been able to get a house. And actually, fair enough, when we look at the generations before us, most of them had houses uh, by this age. I'm 33. Most people in the generations before me in America had houses in their 20s. If you look at 1971, uh, before or right after we left the gold standard in the U.S., the average house price was $25,000. Now it's over $200,000, you know, in the U.S. And there's a reason why millennials aren't able to afford as much. There's also a reason why uh, not as much wealth is being transferred. It's because boomers and Generation X keep living too long. <laughs> we need your money. Give us your money. We can't buy a house. You know, but either way, I'm not sure that I would want to even buy a house for my personal use. I'd like to buy an apartment complex. I'd like to buy a duplex. I'd like to buy a multifamily units, but I'm not sure I want to own the house I live in. I don't think it's that important. So I do think you should buy real estate, 
But I don't think that the house that you live in has to be yours on paper. What does it actually matter? If the house is only, I mean, the house is good as an asset. And if the house is only good as an asset, if you're living in it, you can't make money off the asset unless you're, obviously you can, you know, accommodate things for taxes, you know, your office space, and you might even be able to do some business out of the house that makes it a, a profit center. But just as a pure investment, it seems like it's a loser. You know, if you're going to live in the house that you're buying, it's just like, you, you know, you have to be the one to pay back the mortgage. <laughs> I'd rather buy the house and someone else pay the mortgage. So I don't know, just my two cents. But you don't definitely, you don't have to buy a house. And I think our generation is proving that. Okay, this is my last money myth. And I've turned it into a mindset upgrade, a money mindset upgrade. And here it is. And it's that working in a job will guarantee you security. And I think I covered this pretty well in my book back in 2017. You know working in a job is not going to guarantee you security. You know this. And it's because, well, one, they don't care about you. And two, the economy is changing. In fact, we saw in 2020 and 2021 the Great Resignation, which was what, a quarter of the American workforce resigned, something like that. What was the Great Resignation? Let me look here. The Great Resignation. How many people resigned? Let's see. Oh, man. According to the U.S. Bureau of Labor, wow, this is just in August that 4.3 million people quit their job. I have to look at how many employees actually quit, but it seems like tens of millions of employees quit their job. I don't think it was one in five. That seems way too high, but it seems like tens of millions of people quit their job. And I think it's just because, well, I, I don't think that people like working that much. I, I think people like doing the things that make them happy. And if you can find an intersection of uh, happiness and uh, livelihood, that's the best fit. But for the most part, especially when we're talking younger people who don't have all the family responsibilities, if they don't have to work, why would they? It sucks. It sucks just to work. Okay. When you're, when you're living to work, it sucks. When you're working to live, it's better. And you want to, you want to do things that are going to make you feel good about your life when you're in bed by yourself asleep or, or not asleep, but thinking about your day at the end of the day, when you're in bed by yourself, you want to feel good about what you're doing. And the job, if it's not fun and it doesn't necessarily guarantee you security, we know that uh, jobs are much more likely to let people go now because of COVID. We know they're much more likely to let people go because of the economy. We know that, um, you know, it doesn't guarantee you security. Why not go out on your own and start your own thing? Obviously, this is the New Wave Entrepreneur Podcast. I am biased, but why depend on someone else to give you that security? Now, working your own, you know, business is certainly no cakewalk. And I would say that, you know, it's not necessarily any, I would say that it doesn't mean it's not stressful. Okay. Let me give you this, this, paint this scenario for you. It's not stress. It's not stress-free to be an entrepreneur. Okay. Far from it. And I wouldn't even say that it's guaranteed security to work as an entrepreneur. But what I am saying is that working a job won't guarantee you security either. It's not either or. It's not like, oh, well, work a job and be guaranteed security or work for yourself and let it be super risky. You can work for someone else and be constantly on in danger of being on the cutting block. Okay, you can work for yourself and be very, very secure um, based on what you're selling and what your company is and what you're offering is. And remember, we're talking about value at the very top of this podcast. So don't mix up the two, but you can have a very secure living and work for yourself. And you can have a very insecure living and work for someone else. And the job is not going to guarantee you the security. It's the value that you're bringing in that job or to your customer base as an entrepreneur. And those are well, those are my mindset upgrades. So let's go through these myths one more time. And we'll talk about the money mindset upgrade. One, 
Money is hard to make and difficult to manage, but we know that's not true because you can learn yourself and create habits. Number two, bills can be paid late. While that upgrade is they cannot be paid late. They are to be paid on time or early. Number three is if you have the credit, spend it. I say if you have the credit, don't spend it. Keep it there. Don't do nothing with it. You know, spend it once a month and pay it back immediately, same day even. Number four, saving is saving money is done infrequently. I say it's done as regularly as possible. And if you use apps like Robinhood for frequent investing, although I don't recommend Robinhood, if you use apps like Coinbase to do dollar cost averaging in crypto, which I do recommend, if you use things like Digit or Acorns, which are automatic saving and investing apps, which I've also used and recommend, those are great. But that mindset shift there is to save all the time because saved money becomes invested money That's the next step, essentially. You can't just save money. You have to invest it. But the habit of saving leads to the habit of investing. Number five is investing is too complicated to even attempt. We know this is not true. There are simple ways to do it. And I talked about the simple ways you can do it with ETFs like Vanguard. It's in this uh, podcast. Check it out. Uh, Number six, there's no need to study money or personal finance. We know that's not true. You should add it to your list of developed skills. Number seven, taking on debt is to be expected. I would say challenge you, challenge that mindset and say, how can I do this? debt-free. Number eight is talking about money is rude. I'd say it's rude not to talk about money because money is all around us. Number nine, you should definitely buy a house. I'd say mine to upgrade there is buy where you rent. Wait, that doesn't make sense. Not buy where you rent. (laughs) Live where you rent and buy. Wait, (laughs) rent where you live and buy where you rent. There it is. You get what I'm saying. Create cash flow for yourself. Don't just buy a house and live in it because then you're the one paying the mortgage. Buy a house and let someone else live in it and let them pay the mortgage and you go rent somewhere else. And then let the payments that the person is paying on the rent that they're paying for your house pay for your mortgage and the the rent of the place that you're renting. Aha. Uh-huh. Think about it. Now you got an asset and cash flow. Boom, boom, boom. Okay, and number 10 is working a job will guarantee you security, and we automatically and already know that working a job does not guarantee you security. Uh, in fact, neither does having your own business. They're really non, non, uh, non-related. non You can have a secure lifestyle with a business, and you can have a very insecure lifestyle with a job. It's up to you and the value that you provide. Okay, so that's the show for today, guys. I hope you enjoyed it so, so much. I enjoyed giving you this rundown. And of course, this is all in prelude to Money Moves, the next workshop that we're hosting here as part of the New Wave community. This is January 27th. You can learn more about this at newwaveentrepreneur.com forward slash workshop. This is where we're talking about the Money Moves workshop. It's the new workshop at the end of January. You can come live and you can ask questions or you can watch it streaming on demand. And we're going to cover on this workshop money how to understand it, what to do with it as a professional, as an entrepreneur, how to understand investing, how to understand cash flow, how to understand tax saving strategies, how to get your money move on. So that's all I got for you today. Much love, guys. Please continue to follow along on all the platforms that we've been growing. If you're not part of the Discord channel and you're already a member of my community, make sure you're getting on Discord. Make sure you're chiming up on Substack as well. I've seen some really good comments on the posts recently. Uh, As you know, premium members get free access to all the workshops I'm producing this year. So we already had the New Wave Workshop which was uh, in December, and that was all crypto. Now we have the Money Moves Workshop, which is all money investment tax strategy. That's happening end of January. 
well, I can't even tell you what we're doing in February. It could have something to do with psychedelics, but I can't tell you. Either way, premium members of our Substack community will get uh, free tickets to those workshops as well. If you don't want to join the community, that's just totally fine. You can join a, and watch us one off for 97 bucks and join in on these workshops to participate live as well. Um, and so please go ahead and check us out. You can go on the Substack and check us out. You can go to newwaveentrepreneur.com and see where all this stuff is listed. That's all I got for you today, guys. Much love. The water is warm. The tide is rising. So let's get ready to surf this new wave. I'm Daniel DiPiazza. I'll catch you on the other side. 